Today is the beginning of my fourth teaching about Elijah out of 1 Kings. And I tell you, this has been powerful. This is one of the ways that God has just transformed my life is through these biblical characters. I learn lessons through them. And they're lessons that I don't have to learn. I can learn it at their expense. As I said, this is the beginning of my fourth teaching, and we're now into 1 Kings chapter 19, and we've covered a tremendous amount of material, but it's basically all been positive. Elijah saw things happen that no other person had ever seen happen. You know, prior to Elijah, there was Moses, and Moses, his face shone. He was in the presence of God. He heard the audible voice of God, got the Ten Commandments, he had all of the plagues come. He saw the earth open up and swallow Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And he uh, hit the rock and water came out. And I mean, Eli Moses was a powerful man of God. But did you know that Elijah saw things happen that Moses never saw happen? He's, he was the first person recorded in Scripture to ever see a person raised from the dead. He was the first person recorded in Scripture that ever saw food multiplied the way that he did. He's the first person in Scripture that ravens brought bread and flesh and supernaturally fed him. He's the first person in Scripture that had ever gone up and seen an entire nation just totally turn on a dime and say, the Lord, He is the God. He saw a great revival. Elijah was the first person who ever called for a drought and then ended the drought. And I mean, this was just amazing. Elijah was used of God in great powerful ways. But in 1 Kings chapter 19, we see Elijah's downfall. And Elijah failed big time. More than what I believe most people recognize. You have to kind of meditate on these things and really study this to understand some of this. And I'll be pointing these things out. But 1 Kings chapter 19 shows Elijah's downfall. So after he had had this challenge with the prophets of Baal, after he had killed at least 450 prophets of Baal and possibly even the 400 prophets of the grove, a total of 850 men, after he had done that, after he had ended the drought, after he had outrun a chariot for 20 miles, after the chariot had a head start, after all of those things, it says in 1 Kings 19.1, and Ahab told Jezebel, Ahab was the king, Jezebel was the queen, all that Elijah had done and withal how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me and more also if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. Boy, this, there are some powerful things here, things that I've spent a lot of time meditating on. But Jezebel, first of all, she's the one that according to 1 Kings 18, 19, I believe, she's the one that paid for all of these prophets of, the, of Baal and the prophets of the grove, a total of 850 people. She fed them daily at her table. So this was state-sponsored religion. Jezebel was the driving force behind it. And when Elijah called for all the prophets to come to Mount Carmel and he was going to have a showdown, Jezebel didn't show up. Jezebel just snubbed him. Jezebel didn't honor Elijah. She didn't care about him. And she didn't even show up. But when Ahab got back and told her about what Elijah had done, 
Jezebel was incensed, and she sent this messenger, saying, So let the gods do to me if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. You know, I don't doubt that Jezebel hated Elijah. I believe she hated him with everything that she had. I believe she wanted him dead, but if she had really wanted him dead, she would have sent a soldier with a sword and not a messenger with a note. You know, you got to realize that even tyrants, whether they like to admit it or not, uh, they cannot just totally rule independent of people. The people and how they respond really does limit what even a dictator can do. And so Jezebel right here, I don't doubt that she wanted Elijah dead, but she sent a messenger with a note. This was intimidation. And there is a great parallel here that I don't doubt that the devil hates me, hates every born-again believer, hates every godly person. I know that he hates us. He goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, but he cannot just devour us. He does not have the power to just steamroll us. He doesn't have the power to just kill you, to destroy your finances, to destroy your family. He has to go about seeking whom he may devour. There has to be some degree of cooperation on our part. Satan can't do anything to us without our consent and cooperation. Sure, he wants you dead. He comes to steal, kill, and to destroy, John 10, 10. That's what he wants to do, but he just can't do it to every person. So what he does, he intimidates. This, this is a perfect example. Jezebel is a perfect personification of the devil right here. She wanted Elijah dead, but if she could have done it, she would have just done it. Instead, she was intimidating him, hoping that somehow or another he would just cow and run off, which is exactly what happened. And so it says in the next verse, in verse 3, And when he saw that, when he saw what? In the previous verse, she said, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. When he saw what? When he saw himself dead like one of these prophets of Baal that he had killed. Now again, you got to go back and remember that in the 18th chapter, he had killed all of the prophets of Baal, and we don't know if that included the prophets of the grove, but it was a minimum of 450 people up to 850 people. And it's the way that it's stated, it's made like the nation of Israel, the people trapped these prophets. They held them there. They wouldn't let them go. But it doesn't say that they killed them. It says that Elijah went down and slew them. Now, he may have had other people that joined with him, but Elijah was the one that was killing these prophets. And so you've got to picture this. If you take a sword and you kill 850 people or 450 people, you are going to be covered in blood. You're going to, ha you're going to see bodies there that have been dismembered uh, you know, stomachs gushed open. I mean, it was a gore. It was a graphic, gory sight. Eight hundred and fifty people. That's amazing. Think about the volume of space. Think about what that would look like. This was something that was so graphic. I'm sure it was seared in Elijah's memory that he would never get over that sight of seeing eight hundred and fifty people just butchered. And then she says, I'm going to make you like one of them. And he saw that. Elisha saw himself dead. 
He could see it. He could picture it. He saw himself dead. Now you got to remember that Elijah had walked boldly up to Ahab and spoken in the name of the Lord, identified himself with the Lord who Ahab and Jezebel were out to extinguish, you know, eradicate the true worshipers of God. That's in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. He had been bold then. Then in the 18th chapter, he was bold again. He called all the prophets together and he stood up and he killed all of these prophets. He had stood against armies, against kings. He had been fearless. And yet now he's running from a woman that sent a messenger with a note. Did you know this doesn't compute? And here is one of the lessons that I learned from Elijah. And this is one of the most important things that I think I've ever learned from the Word of God. And that is that when you have a, when you are living in success, when it looks like everything is going good, you are at your most vulnerable. And the reason for that is that when people are in a tight spot, when they're in a hardship, most people know that the answer is bigger than them, that they need help from God, and they will turn to God in hard times, and they will seek God. But when everything is going good, most people don't recognize their need for God. And yet we are just as dependent upon God when things are good as they are when they're bad. You know, it's like flying in a plane. When you're flying in that plane, it's not you flying. It's not you that's flying at 40,000 feet. It's not you that's going five or 600 miles an hour. It's that machine and it's your position inside of that machine. And if you don't believe it, step outside of the machine and I guarantee you, you'll drop like a rock. But we sometimes forget it. We forget these kind of things. And so when people are in trouble is when they spend most of their time praying and seeking God. When is it that you spend most of your time studying the Word and praying and crying out to God? It's when your back's against the wall, when you're facing a life and death situation and you know that you need help. And boy, we can turn off the television. We can get focused on God. We can seek God with our whole heart. Most people pray more, seek the Lord more when they're in trouble than when they're in prosperity. Prosperity, if you look at the history of the church and you just go back uh, throughout church history, you will find out that during persecution, during hardship, when the church is oppressed, it flourishes. You know why? Because people recognize, God, I need you. Their life is in danger. They aren't able to prosper. They're being persecuted. They're being rejected. And they seek God. And because of it, they prosper. But during times of prosperity, the church actually languishes because people just don't seek the Lord. They step outside of that plane thinking, oh man, it's smooth sailing and everything's fine. You are just as dependent upon that plane in good weather as you are in bad weather. But we don't realize it. We don't focus on it. And so here's one of the greatest lessons that I've ever learned. And that is that it's in times of success and prosperity that you are your most vulnerable. And I have learned at Elijah's expense, also at David's expense, that man, when things are going good, I don't take that for granted. And I purposely discipline myself to seek the Lord, to spend time with the Lord, to be focused on the Lord, knowing that when I'm strong, then I'm really weak. Paul said this over in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. When I'm in a situation that's beyond me, that really 
makes me, it forces me to depend upon God and that's when I'm strong. But when I'm, everything's fine and I'm thinking, oh God, man, everything's just awesome. I'm doing really great. I tend not to depend upon the Lord. And so I've learned completely to flip-flop what most people think. You know, I've been into Christian bookstores where they have these little plaques and bumper stickers and things. And I, you know, I forget the exact wording, but it's something to the effect that when you're squeezed, that's what we find out what you're really made of. You know, whatever comes out of you when you're squeezed is what you're really made of. And it's, it's saying that in hard times, you find out what a person's really like. I really don't agree with that. I believe that even a Christian that has a minimal commitment to the Lord when their back is against the wall and they're in trouble, they will turn to the Lord and they will seek the Lord. And so in hard times, even a average Christian will seek the Lord. But you know what is a greater indication of what your true character is like? And that is prosperity. When everything's going good, what do you do? I believe that God is speaking directly to some of you that maybe you've sought the Lord and you've seen good things happen. You've seen your business prosper. You've been promoted. Your marriage is going good. Finances are good. Maybe you've been healed of your body. Maybe you don't have a problem right now. But I can guarantee you we live in a fallen world and Satan has not quit trying to attack you. He goes about seeking whom he may devour. And if you are getting into self sufficiency and trusting in yourself and thinking everything's fine now, you are a disaster waiting to happen. You need to somehow maintain this dependency upon God even in good times. You need to, one of the ways you do that is by just thanksgiving. You go back and acknowledge, God, you're my source. You're the one who's blessed me. You're the one who's caused me to prosper. You're the one who's given me every good thing that I've got in my life. And Father, I remember you. And by doing that, acknowledging that and being thankful, it'll keep you God-dependent. You also need to recognize that your adversary, the devil, is as a roaring lion. He's going about seeking whom he may devour. And you cannot get complacent. When you reach your goals, when you become the success that you've been fighting for for years, you need to have another goal. You need to have something out there in front of you. You don't ever need to get to a place to where now you just turn off the engine and you're just coasting. The moment you start coasting like that, the moment you think, man, I've arrived, everything's good, I guarantee you Satan has just painted a huge target on you. You are susceptible. You need to stay God-dependent. Boy, that's one of the lessons that I learned through Elijah. I believe that the reason he fell is because he had been so successful. He had done things that nobody had ever done. Moses had never done some of these things. And he got to thinking he was awesome. And, and look at what this says here. This is 1 Kings 19.3. When he saw that, he arose and went for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. You know, he was asking God to kill him. In other words, he knew that suicide was wrong, but he felt so bad he wanted to die. So rather than kill himself and sin, he, just, he was asking God to kill him. This is like a spiritual way of doing suicide. 
He was so humiliated. He knew that what he was doing was wrong. He knew that he had fled from Jezebel. He had stood boldly against Ahab, against all of the people. He had done these great things, but now he had been intimidated and out of total fear. He had been in faith for years. He had been living by faith. Every day the widow's meal was multiplied. His whole life was a life characterized by faith. And now he was in total fear and unbelief and running, and he, he asked God to kill him. And here is one of the most revealing statements that he made right here in this fourth verse. He says, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. You know what this says? That at one time he thought he was better than his father's. But now he wasn't any better than his father's. He was just as bad. He had sinned. He had missed it just as badly as any of his father's had done. And this is a tremendous revelation, and it shows why he became susceptible and why he entered into fear and unbelief and ran. And it was because he actually was lifted up in pride, thinking, look what I have done. Now this is important. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18 says, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. And Elijah had done so many things that nobody else had ever done. He had raised the first person from dead ever recorded in Scripture. He had called for the first drought that was ever prophesied. He had ended it. He had challenged the prophets to a duel. He had called fire down out of heaven. That had never happened before. He ended the drought. He did all of these things. And Elijah had been reading his own press releases. He had been thinking and looking at what he had done. And I'm not really death on Elijah. I mean, I'm not majorly critical of him. I'm just saying that he came, became susceptible to what every one of us has to deal with, and that is that he got lifted up in pride. And he thought, man, I'm awesome. Look at what I have done. And I'm telling you, one of your weakest times when you are the most vulnerable is when everything has seemed to have gone good, when everybody is singing your praises, boy, you better go out of your way to keep yourself anchored and grounded in the Lord and recognize that it's God who's done all of these things. When you reach your goals is when you're really the most susceptible because you have obtained unto things. You've overcome adversity. You've done these things. And if you aren't careful, you will get to thinking that you are awesome. And yet the truth is, it's not you that's awesome, it's God that's awesome. Jesus said this in the New Covenant. He, says, he said that it's not me that does this, it's my Father that's done this. He refused to take glory and credit, and yet He was God manifest in the flesh. But He constantly kept Himself dependent upon His Father. He constantly was giving God the credit. He constantly was out to just praise and glorify God, and He was not out to seek His own glory. He even said, He that seeks His own glory is not a faithful messenger. It's not a faithful witness. Boy, these are powerful statements, and you can apply all of these things I just said back to Elijah. The reason Elijah failed when Jezebel threatened him was because he had been lifted up in pride. He was not recognizing his dependency upon God. He was thinking, look who I am. Look what I have done. I'm sure if you would have quizzed him 
and have said, did you do this or God? Well, he would have said, oh yeah, it was God. But he was really lifted up and you can see it in this statement. He says, now, take away my life. Kill me because I'm not better than my father's. The truth is he had never been better than his father's. God didn't use him because he was perfect, because he had everything together. I already said over here in the 18th chapter in verse 13 how Obadiah told Elijah that he had taken a hundred prophets of the Lord and he had put them in a cave and hidden them and he had fed them throughout this entire drought. And Elijah just came and he said that I, even I only, this is in verse 30, or excuse me, it's in verse 22, then said Elijah unto the people, I, even I only remain a prophet of the Lord. That wasn't true. Obadiah had told him just moments before that there were still a hundred prophets who hadn't bowed the knee to Baal. And Elijah knew it, but you know what? He wasn't focused on that. He was thinking, I'm the only one who's really anointed. I'm the only one who's not a coward, who's not hiding in a cave. Uh, I don't know exactly how he rationalized it, but he said he was the only one when he knew that wasn't true. He was already beginning to manifest some of these symptoms of thinking that somehow or another he was better than everybody else. Maybe he thought, you know, I'm the only full gospel preacher. I'm the only one that's proclaiming the true gospel. You know, I preached this message in front of a group of preachers at one of our minister seminars and I began to start making some of these applications and boy, it hit home with a lot of people. You know, there's a lot of people that they think they're the only real messenger of God in a city and yet it's just never true. It's never true. Anytime you get to thinking, I'm the only one. I'm the only one with this revelation. I'm the only one in my family who's really seeking God. I'm the only one who truly loves God. Anytime you do that, that's that Elijah syndrome and it's an indication that you are, have an exalted opinion of yourself. There's always other people. There is nothing new under the sun. You don't have something that nobody else has ever had. Boy, this is really critical that you understand this. And these things are what led Elijah to his downfall is the fact that he was thinking, I'm better than my father's. This is something that is hard for some people to grab hold of because as they get used to the Lord and as they grow in the Lord, they think it's because somehow or another now they are better. They are awesome. And yet the truth is that you in yourself, I'm talking about you in just your carnal self, your physical body, your natural mind, it doesn't get better. Actually, the Christian life, the growth in the Christian life isn't you getting stronger and getting better. It's you recognizing more and more your own inabilities and your own weaknesses and you turn away from yourself and trusting in yourself and you become more and more dependent upon God. You know, Paul said this. He's over in Romans chapter 6. I'm not going to take time to turn over and read it, but he says, Though, so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Paul also said in Romans chapter 7, he says, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. Your flesh isn't getting better. Your carnality isn't getting less. You are getting more and more dependent upon the Spirit of God and you aren't relying on your carnal, natural self. But if you step out of the Lord, again, like this plane, you step out of that plane, I don't care how high you are, how fast you're going, you step out of that plane, you are going to fall. 
you step out of your dependence upon God and you get back into yourself, I don't care if self has got trophies sitting on its mantle and you've won all of these awards, you're the salesman of the year, if everybody's singing your praises, if you get to singing your praises, you're going to fall. And that's one of the lessons that I learned through Elijah. Elijah was probably one of the most anointed, powerful servants that God has ever had, and yet he was susceptible to getting lifted up with pride, thought he was better than his fathers. And the moment he did that, he fell. I tell you, it's a recipe for disaster to get lifted up with pride. And that's one of the lessons that I learned from Elijah. You are you're at your most vulnerable after you've seen a great success because you will tend to start taking credit for it. So in the midst of this, asking God to kill him and take away his life, in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 5, it says, And as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake baking on the coals and a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink and laid him down again. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. So here is Elijah, totally in failure, totally in fear. God had used him to cause a revival. The entire nation had fallen on their face and said, The Lord, He is the God. And the man who God anointed to preach that revival and to lead that revival had now run in fear from Jezebel and was hundreds of miles away asking that God would kill him and take away his life. He had totally missed God. He was out of place. And yet, here's God ministering to him and giving him supernatural strength. You know, God could have just tossed him to the side and said, forget you. But that's not the way that God is. You know, it reminds me of Peter when he walked on the water. Peter walked on the water. We often talk about how he began to sink, but he did walk on the water. Peter did something that nobody else outside of Jesus recorded in Scripture had ever done. And Peter was doing something supernatural, but he took his eyes off of Jesus. Did you know Jesus could have just said, well, let you drown. I'll teach you. I'll show people what happens when they don't look at me. But no, when he took his eyes off of Jesus and he saw the wind and the waves and he began to relate back to the natural, he began to sink. Jesus reached out his hand and picked him up. Now, he did chastise him and say, Peter, why did you doubt? He taught him something, but he didn't forsake him. He lifted him up and he walked back to the boat. And I don't believe he walked back to the boat carrying Peter, but he walked back. He strengthened Peter and enabled Peter to walk back on the water to the boat. And then the boat and all of its inhabitants were translated to the other side of the lake. The Lord didn't forsake Peter. He lifted him up. He taught him a lesson. He rebuked him over it, but he, he, he didn't forsake him. Right here, he could have just told Elijah. He says, Elijah, you know, you ran from Jezebel. I've supernaturally protected you from Ahab, from all of these people. There's this revival going on, all of these awesome things, and you forsook me. You ran in total fear. He could have just totally forsaken him. That's the way that a lot of people envision God as a person that if we don't do everything right, he's just going to forsake us. But that is not what the scriptures teach. Here is Elijah in total defeat, in total retreat, when God said advance, and yet God is feeding him supernaturally, sent an angel, provided for him, and didn't do it just once, did it twice. 
And finally, Elijah gets up and he heads down to Mount Sinai. And it says in verse um, 9, He came thither unto a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him and said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? You know, if you missed any of my teaching on this a few weeks ago when I was teaching out of 1 Kings chapter 17, this may not make as big an impact on you. But if you understood and if it impacted you the way it did me in 1 Kings 17 where God didn't send Elijah's provision to where he was, he said, I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. He didn't send Elijah's food directly to him. He sent it to where he told him to go. And I made a major point out of this that there is a place called there for every one of us. And the reason many of us aren't seeing God's provision in our life is because we aren't all there. We've got to go there. God doesn't send provision to us and then send us someplace. He tells us where He wants us to go. And when we get there, the provision is there. So there is a place called there. And here is God saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? Did you know Mount Sinai was not the place called there for Elijah? He should have been back in Samaria. God had used Elijah to call fire down out of heaven, to destroy Baal worship. The whole nation was primed and ready to have a relationship with God. They'd fallen on their face crying out that the Lord, He is the God. And yet the person that God had anointed to preach this revival and to lead these people into relationship with Him got afraid and ran and was hundreds of miles outside of God's will. All of this nation was now ready to turn to the Lord. And yet the person that God had anointed to lead them in that direction had run in fear. And he wasn't where God told him to be. He wasn't in his place called there. And God is saying, what are you doing here, Elijah? Let me ask you a question. What are you doing where you are. Is that your place called there? Are you doing what God has told you to do? Or have you let fear affect you? You know, you can apply this in a hundred different ways. Some people may geographically be in the wrong place, but I believe the majority of us are in the wrong place spiritually, that we aren't taking steps of faith, we aren't extending ourselves, we aren't bold, we aren't confessing, we're afraid of people's criticism, we're afraid that we'll make a mistake. You know, the only people who are absolute failures are people who fail to do anything out of fear. A person who tries to do something and fails, that's really not a failure. It's a learning process. Nobody does anything perfectly the first time. You know, Dean Radke, who's taught me a lot of things, he's a guy that teaches on management and how to run ministries and different things, and he's taught our um, staff a lot of things. He has this phrase about you fail forward. That you know what? You, don't, you aren't afraid to make a mistake, but when you do make a mistake, you use it as a launching pad. You learn something and you move forward with it. People that are just petrified that they aren't going to do everything perfectly, they're perfectionist and they aren't going to move until they feel like they can do everything perfectly, they never get anything done. You are going to make mistakes. You can't be afraid. You got to do things. You got to step out. So there's all kinds of ways that people are not in that place called there. 
and it's more than just geographical location. Sometimes it's a mental attitude. Sometimes it's a spiritual type of thing. But you have to step out. Elijah was in the wrong place. And God, even though he was in the totally wrong place, here's the Lord still dealing with him in mercy. And God extends, I believe, an opportunity for him to repent right here. When he comes to him and he says, What are you doing here, Elijah? This would have been a great opportunity for Elijah to have repented and to have humbled himself. I believe that if Elijah would have said, God, I'm sorry. I failed. I took my eyes off of you and I began to sink. But now I realize that I'm wrong and I repent and I ask your mercy and I want to go back and I want to do what you've called me to do. I believe that if Elijah would have responded that way, that everything could have been totally different. You know, it's hard to speculate on this because we don't have the record of what might have been, what could have been. But I do believe that Elijah was anointed by God to bring this nation to a revival. And this revival was short-lived. It was short-circuited. Matter of fact, as you continue to read on, there was just terrible ungodliness that continued on for generations and ultimately the nation of Israel was totally destroyed. The nation of Israel, the northern ten tribes, did not seek the Lord the same way that the southern two tribes of Judah and Benjamin did. And Judah and Benjamin uh, lasted, I forgot, but it was over a hundred years, 150 years or more after the northern ten tribes of Israel had gone into captivity. And so Israel did not prosper as well. And it could be that a large part of that was because God caused a revival. They were ripe for it. And yet the guy that God had anointed to do this wasn't there to preach the revival. And so this thing just fizzled out. It died out. Again, I, I can't say emphatically all of the things it could have been, but it would have been different. And I personally believe, and this you can take it as andeology if you want to, but I personally believe that Elisha was not God's first choice, that Elisha was God's replacement for Elijah, and that Elisha actually just fulfilled the things that God wanted Elijah to do. Now, I'll make a bigger point out of this as we continue through this series, but you can see that Elijah was commanded by God to go anoint Haziel to be king of Syria and to go anoint Jehu to be king of Israel. He never did it. And you can prove that he never did it because in 2 Kings chapter 8 and chapter 9, you find that Elisha, his successor, did those things after Elijah was gone. Elisha wouldn't have done it if Elijah had done it. And so Elijah failed in some of these things and Elisha picked up the slack. So here's my point in saying all of this. We don't know what Elijah's life could have been like if he had repented right here and have come up with the right answer. But instead of humbling himself, Elijah persisted in a deception. Look at this. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 10. He said, this is his answer to God when he said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. This isn't humbling himself, and this isn't honest. 
Again, I go back to 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 13. Here's what Obadiah said to Elijah. He says, Is it, Was it not told my Lord what I did when Jezebel slew the prophets of the Lord, how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifty in a cave and fed them with bread and water? Elijah had been told that there were still a hundred prophets, not just a hundred people, but a hundred prophets, preachers, leaders. I've made a number of applications through this that Christians as a whole aren't being bold and stepping out and speaking the Word of God at their workplace, in their families, in their neighborhood, in their dealing with things. We've been cowed into submission by this political correctness, which I believe is nothing but a spirit of Antichrist. And it silenced many Christians. We're silent on these moral issues. And you know what? That's not the place called there. That's not where God wants us to be. And this is why many of you are praying for your neighbors to be saved, your people at work to be saved. But the reason they aren't saved is because you aren't there. You aren't boldly standing up. You aren't speaking the Word of God. You're in your prayer closet praying for them, but you wouldn't stand up and be bold. You won't be counted. And because of that, people are languishing. You aren't in the right spot. You may be geographically in the spot that God wants you, but are you in that place spiritually where you're standing up and taking your authority and speaking the truth boldly and proclaiming it? And I'd have to say that, I'd say that the majority of Christians are not taking this stand. And then you can apply this on many different levels. You know, are you in the place that you're supposed to be in your business? I gave testimony yesterday how the Lord spoke to me January the 31st, 2002 and told me I had limited God. Uh, Psalms chapter 78, verse 41, I had limited God by my small thinking. And I, it wasn't that I was geographically in the wrong place, but spiritually I was in the wrong place. I was afraid of people's rejection. I was afraid of getting lifted up in pride. I was afraid of all kinds of things. And because of it, I wasn't in the place that God wanted me to be. I wasn't boldly taking steps. I wasn't boldly speaking out what God had spoken to me. And He just showed me all of these things and told me I was going to have to change. I was going to have to go there. I didn't physically change. We were in Colorado Springs at that time. I didn't move from the house that I was in. I didn't do anything in these natural things. But you know what I did spiritually speaking? I took a step. Spiritually speaking, I moved. I began to get to a place where I didn't care what people said. I knew that I was going to be misjudged. I knew people were going to misinterpret what I was doing. And I just started boldly start doing what God told me to do. And I mean, it has transformed my life. Every one of us have a place. Not just a... You know, with some people, it could be a physical place. I have... Uh, people come to me all the time saying that God has told them to come to Bible college and yet for whatever reason they don't do it. And so they stay wherever they are and they won't come out here because they're afraid they won't have a job. They can't get, uh, you know, housing. Uh, some people don't like the weather and just a million different things. And so it was wrong. He knew it was wrong. I don't know why he said this, but I do know that there's many times that I've said it myself, I've heard lots of other people say this, that you just get depressed and you feel something, like nothing ever works out for me. You know that's not true. You know it's not true. And yet, this is how you feel, and we get to speaking out of our feelings. The moment you do that, the moment you exalt your own knowledge, your own feelings above the Word of God, I guarantee you, you're in trouble. That is the wrong thing. 
And Elijah, instead of accepting responsibility and saying, God, I got nobody to blame but myself. I missed. I failed you. Instead, you know what he did? He says, God, I'm the only one serving you. All, they're, they're killing the prophets of the Lord. They're doing all of these things. He began to blame other people and put the responsibility for where he was on other people. I was forced into this. They're trying to kill me. I had to run here. None of those things were true. It is true that Jezebel wanted him dead, but as I pointed out, if she really just wanted him dead, she'd have sent a soldier with a sword instead of a messenger with a note. She was threatening him, intimidating him. He could have stayed there. God would have protected him. He had already protected him from Ahab and from all of the armies. He did not have to do this, but instead of humbling himself, he began to place blame on other people. Brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, this is important. I know that all of us, we fail, we make mistakes. It's going to happen to everybody. Every one of us does something wrong. That's part of being a, a person that has sinned and is living in a fallen world. You're going to make mistakes. I don't care who you are. Me, you, all of us. None of us are perfect. God's never had anybody qualified working for Him yet. Making a mistake is one thing, but it's how we respond to our mistakes that determine whether we become bitter or better. And one of the mistakes that is made is that when we do fail, we need to humble ourselves and take responsibility and say, God, other people might have said this. They might have hurt me. They might have threatened me. There might have been threats of rejection or, you know, you can, you can name those things, but you have to say, but God, it's my fault. I didn't trust you in this area. I failed. Nobody made me do what I did. We see this, you know, blame game where we blame anybody and everybody else. We see it in every aspect. There's people that say, I can't help it. I just gain weight. I don't know what happened. I just look at food and gain weight. That's not true. You can't blame other people. Well, you know, and we, we use all of these excuses, but the truth is that since you were a little tiny baby and you learned how to feed yourself, since that time, nobody made you eat anything. If you're an adult, you ate whatever you ate. You put it in your mouth. Nobody else has spoon-fed you. The truth is you can't blame anything else. It's your choices. It's what you do. And that's the first step to dealing with some of these things is to quit blaming everybody else. You know, I can promise you, you will lose weight if you don't eat. You know, in the last few weeks, I've been so busy that I just honestly haven't had time to eat. And I, I mean, I probably should have, but I've just been busy and I hadn't been eating. And you know what? I've lost about eight or 10 pounds or something. I guarantee you, you don't eat, you'll lose weight. Now there's more to it to be able to keep it off and there's a right and wrong way to eat. But the point I'm making is that we know some things are wrong, but we just blame this. You don't understand. It's that woman that you gave me. That's what Adam did. He blamed Eve and then ultimately tried to put the blame on God. This is just something that is characteristic of all fallen human beings is that we don't want to admit that we're the problem, but this is part of humility and humbling ourselves before God. God told Elijah, He says, What are you doing here, Elijah? And if Elijah would have just said, God, I'm sorry. 
I was, in, I was afraid. I got intimidated. I ran. Forgive me. Things would have been different. But instead, he went to justifying himself. God, you don't understand. The whole nation is turned against you. They are doing these things. They're killing the prophets, and I'm the only one left. He knew that wasn't true, but he was out to justify himself, and it was the wrong answer. So in the next verse, 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 11, and he said, this is God speaking, he said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire a still small voice. You know, there's a lot of things here, and I'm not sure that I have all of this figured out, but I do believe that Elijah had seen all of these spectacular things, seen fire come down out of heaven, see the dead raised, seen all of these things. But you know what? It was just the simple word of the Lord that started the whole thing with Elijah. Going back to the very first teaching that I had on this, four weeks ago, the word of the Lord came unto Elijah and he went unto Ahab and spoken. And that's what catapulted him into this position of leadership and prominence. He just heard from God and it was that still small voice, just the simple leading of God that had changed Elijah's life. And he had started out that way and for years that's the way he went. But when he saw all of this miraculous stuff happen, he had gotten away from just simply listening to the still small voice of the Lord. You know, you can get addicted to the spectacular, to the miraculous. I've seen this in my own life, that there's times that in my prayer life, God speaks things to me that just knock me flat on my face. I mean, I heard from God. And if I'm not careful the next day, I'll want to, oh God, speak to me again. And I'll want another blinding flash of light and a new revelation. But it's not like that. God doesn't just give you something totally brand new every day and do something miraculous. You have to learn how to just live your life on a consistent daily basis, just walking with the Lord. And so there's a couple of things here I think that could have happened. God showed him these spectacular things. A wind that was so strong, it broke in pieces the rocks, an earthquake, a fire, all of these, you know, dramatic, spectacular things. And yet God wasn't in any of that. He wasn't wanting him to just relate in these supernatural ways. He was wanting to just go back to this still, small voice of the Lord. Man, that's amazing. That's a powerful truth. And finally, this still small voice, and in verse 13 it says, And it was so when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? Now notice all of these spectacular displays, the, the wind, the earthquake, the fire. Elijah didn't wrap his face in the mantle. That didn't overwhelm him. But when God spoke in just this still, small voice, little tiny voice, it overwhelmed Elijah. He was overwhelmed with the majesty of God. You know, I don't have the words to properly convey this to you, but I have seen spectacular things. I've seen people raised from the dead, my own son. I've seen blind eyes open. I've seen deaf ears open. I've seen 
some awesome, awesome things. And even though I praise God for that and I appreciate it, did you know just having God speak to me in an inner voice, not an audible thing that I hear with my physical ears, but just having God reveal His Word to me and speak in my heart, there's times that that has just overwhelmed me. The way that the Lord presents Himself, meek and lowly, Jesus said that in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. He says, I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. The way that God exhibits His glory in such understated ways, like here's God Almighty coming to earth in the form of Jesus, and when He was born, He was born in a stable, not in a palace, not with all of the fancy things around, but He came in ways that it took faith to perceive. I'm sure that the uh, Mary and Joseph and the shepherds, when they saw Jesus laying in a manger, it took faith to believe that this was really God, that God is this little tiny baby and He's in a manger. He's in a trough that they use to feed animals. You know what? God is just a master of understating. If God was to really portray all of His glory, it would just overwhelm us. We couldn't handle it. I believe that this is why the Bible says that no man can see me and live. God was speaking and He says, no man can see me and live. It's not because He's going to kill you if you get a glimpse. It's because He is so majestic. He is so awesome that if we were to ever really see God, who He really is, your physical body can't handle it. You'd explode. You'd disintegrate. You'd vaporize. You just cannot handle the true glory of God. And so He is a master of understating things, presenting his, Himself in a way that is understated and it takes faith to be able to see. And this is what I see here with Elijah. God did all of these awesome manifestations, but God wasn't in any of those things. It was just the still, small voice. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle. He was afraid to look on God. He was afraid to be in the presence of God. You know, a lot of times people take all of these things as symbolic and they don't realize that this really happened. But this really did happen. You know, I have been in the presence of God. With my physical eyes, I've never seen the glory of God. With my physical ears, I've never heard an audible voice from God. But I have been in the presence of God. March the 23rd, 1968, God showed up and it was so real and so powerful that I was afraid to open my eyes. I lay on the floor. I put my head on the floor. I was afraid to open my eyes, afraid that I would see God Almighty. And, and uh, I don't know how to describe it, but when you are in the presence of the Lord, your relative unworthiness is just screaming at you. And you know that, man, if you got what you deserved, you'd be a pile of ashes. And this is what I see. God manifested Himself to Elijah. And look at this in the next verse. It says in verse 13, It was so when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? Did you know that this is word for word what God asked him in the ninth verse? If the first time God asks you something, you respond one way, and then He asks you again, it's probably because you didn't answer it right the first time, or He wouldn't have asked you again. This is like God gave him a quiz. 
All right, here's a test, Elijah. What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah gave this response. I've been very jealous for you. I've been serving you. They're killing the prophets and I'm the only one left. And then God asked him again, Elijah, what are you doing? It's like he let him retake the test. You know, if they give you a test a second time and said, you need to retake this test, you ought to be pretty sure that the reason you are getting a retake is because you failed the first time through. Don't answer the same way. Even if you don't understand what the answer is, just put anything down. But don't give the same answer on a retake of the test. Elijah would have been well to have answered anything other than the exact same thing, but he answered word for word what he said before. Look at this in verse 14. And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altar, slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. That wasn't right the first time he said it. I showed you that. First Kings chapter 18, verse 13. Obadiah had told him there were still a hundred prophets of the Lord there? that were still serving God, hiding in a cave, and he'd been doing what them? God It wasn't right the first time Elijah right gave now, this answer, this the and it wasn't right the second time he gave this answer. He was wrong both times. And you times. tried... And you failed. And I believe this shows right the now, graciousness of the Lord. God, first of all, when Elijah failed him big time, and just ran in total fear and unbelief. God didn't throw him aside. He supernaturally fed him. He led him to the mountain of God, and he asked him this question. He was giving Elijah an opportunity to repent. And when Elijah gave the wrong answer, and instead of humbling himself and repenting, he justified himself and basically placed the blame everywhere else. God, it's everybody else's fault that I'm in this situation. God didn't reject him and throw him away then. He gave him a retake. He gave him another chance. And Elijah just kept the same thing that he had said that was wrong the first time. He repeated it the second time. I'm telling you, there's lessons for each one of us. Is asking you, what are you doing here? Don't make the same mistake that Elijah did and start saying, but God, I tried and it was because this happened and that happened and I didn't have this provision. Don't blame anybody and everybody else. The proper response would be for you just to humble yourself and say, God, I'm sorry. I failed. What do you want me to do? And I believe that God is speaking to somebody that, you know what, you need to get back on track. You need to get back into the ministry. I don't care how badly you've blown it. God can still use you. You may have to do some things differently. You may have to deal with the consequences of what you've done or haven't done. But you need to do what God told you to do. This is what he was saying to Elijah. And Elijah just kept saying the wrong thing. You need to humble yourself and you need to go to that place called there. You need to go to where God has called you to be. And there are some of you that are out of place and because of it, you aren't seeing the physical provision. You aren't seeing the financial provision, the emotional provision. You're languishing in all of these areas and it's because you aren't all there. You need to go do what God called you to do. But Elijah failed to do it. So God let him retake this test. Anytime God has you take the test over, ask you the same question, it's because you gave the wrong answer the first time. You would be better off to come up with a different answer. But Elijah came up with the exact same answer, still blamed other people. God, I'm the only one. 
I just want to share with you, this is one of the lessons that I've learned, that any time I think I'm the only one that has this revelation, I'm the only one who's serving God, God, I'm the only one. Any time that thought ever comes to me, I immediately think of Elijah, and I, I call it the Elijah syndrome. And man, any time I go to thinking I'm the only one that's doing anything, I realize this is error. That is not true. Now, there are some things, like I'm going to say some things in the rest of this chapter that I've never heard anybody else teach on, but I know that there's other people that have this. There's nothing new under the sun. And so I'll just emphasize that it's not being said enough. There's not enough people saying it. But I have come to the conclusion that, man, I'm not the, I'm not the only one that God could use. I'm not the only one that has this revelation. I'm not the only one anything. You know, not too long ago, two years ago, as a matter of fact, I had a situation come up and I, there was a person who was a very good friend of mine who's been a tremendous blessing to me and there's just all kinds of positive things associated with this man and yet it was time for him to leave the ministry. And I didn't like it. It was distasteful to me, but I mean, I waited probably two years to say something after I knew it was time. And, and so anyway, I, I was probably wrong. I'm not saying I did all of this right, but I finally came to a place to where I knew that I knew that I knew that that was God's will that we needed to separate. And I finally brought myself to say something, but in this process, I was saying, but God, I love this person. God, I don't want to hurt this person. God, this person has helped me here. They've done this. I wouldn't be what I am. I wouldn't be where I am if it wasn't for their help. And I was thinking of all of these things. And in a sense, I was saying, God, I can't make it without this person. And I mean, the Lord very clearly spoke to me and he said, nobody is indispensable. See, that's the same thing right here. Elijah, I'm the only one. No, there's never, you're never the only one. Nobody is indispensable. And then after the Lord told me about that about this person, he says, neither are you. He says, if you don't do what I tell you to do, I'll get somebody else to do it. And all of a sudden I thought, you know what? I can do this. <laughs> I decided what it really brings you back down to reality. Put your feet on the ground once you understand that, you know what? Nobody's indispensable. And anytime you get to thinking that you are indispensable, you're the only one. You're the only one serving God. You've got this Elijah syndrome going, and I'm guaranteeing you it's not good. How did God respond to this? He was gracious to Elijah. He gave him a couple of chances, but finally, after Elijah responded this way, look at this in 1 Kings chapter 19. And in verse 15, it says, And the Lord said unto him, Go return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when thou comest, anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Saphat, of Abel-Meholah, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. He gave him three things to do. And remember that this was the Lord speaking to him in an audible, still small voice. This isn't just an impression he had that maybe he missed God, maybe he understood it. No, this was clear direction, an audible voice from God telling Elijah to do three things. And he only did one out of the three, which was go 
And it was the last thing. He was commanded to do three things, anoint Haziel to be king over Syria, Jehu to be king over Israel, and Elisha to take your place. The only thing he did was the last thing. He went and anointed Elisha to take his place, which to me says that Elijah had basically, he just had it. He was through. He had failed God. He didn't, he couldn't ever face people again and in the name of the Lord stand there as a prophet and do these things. And he had lost confidence in himself. He was embarrassed. He just wanted out. He wanted to retire. It was over. He went and anointed his replacement and he did not do the other two things that God commanded him to do. So you can see all of this right here. It says in verse... Um, 17, it says, And it shall come to pass, him that escapeth the sword of Haziel shall Jehu slay, and him that escapeth from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Yet I have left me seven thousand in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. So Elijah said, I'm the only one. He knew that there were a hundred more, but nonetheless, he was saying he was the only one. God told him there were still seven thousand. So there was, you know, that he was totally, totally out of, out of place in what he was saying. Likewise, I know this may not really bless you right now, but it's the truth that anytime you go to thinking you're the only one and stuff, you're always wrong. There's always a remnant. God always has his people. You know, we listen to the news media today and the news media has been taken over by the ungodly. And they aren't presenting good things. They thrive on controversy. They thrive on negative things. They don't report about all of the planes that land safely. They'll report on the one that crashed. They don't report on all of the people who are living in harmony and the good things that are being done. They'll talk about the people who murdered somebody, who raped somebody, who stole this and stuff. That's just the way that our world is. They gravitate and just constantly feed us this diet of bad information. But the truth is that there's a lot of really good things happening. Here's how I feel in my heart. I don't know that I can prove this to you. I don't have the statistics to prove this, but I really believe that we are living probably in one of the greatest revivals that the world has ever seen. And I know that my me saying that many of you are just taken back like, no way, look at the way this nation is going. And again, you're looking at all this bad stuff. You know, a few years back, I went to um, Washington, D.C., and while I was there, I went to this thing that David Barton puts on. He's the one that heads up wall builders. And David Barton has joined up with me, and together at Karis Bible College, we are now doing a practical government school. And we're training people how to, you know, practically get involved in government and start making a difference in our government. And so anyway, David and Cheryl Barton have become good friends. But I went to Washington, D.C., and they have a thing where they bring in ministers and they teach you the history of, of uh, America and they do a lot of things. They have a tour of the Capitol they go through. And I mean, there are, I, I don't know for sure, but I'm saying for sure there's dozens, possibly a hundred statues in our nation's capital of preachers who were involved in politics, who were politicians, who did all of these things. And they give you all of this godly background, which most of us have been denied. And we've been taught that there's a separation of church and state, which is not true. 
and it wasn't that way. The people who founded our nation uh, founded it on Christian principles. As a matter of fact, in this practical government school, one of the things that we're going to do is go back to original documents. David Barton has the largest private library in the world of American patriots and their writings outside of, you know, the, outside of the public stuff. I mean, in private, he's got the largest collection. And he's going to go back and we're going to take the actual writings from people in the early 1800s who were used to write the Declaration, to write all of the amendments and stuff. And we're going to hear their own comments about why they said this and what they meant. And anyway, it's going to be powerful. But my point is that when I was there and I heard all of this godly background, and then we had, again, I'd have to guess, but I'd say at least six, maybe ten sitting senators come and speak to us. And they were, I mean, uh, committed Christians, people who were standing up and doing things. What it did, it just really encouraged me and showed me that God is doing so many awesome things, not only in the past, but in the present. Man, God is moving. God's raising up people. There are people that were miraculously called and separated and they made it into the political realm by supernatural intervention of God. And I heard all of these things. And I went up to David and I said, Man, this has really encouraged me. I said, I didn't know this. I said, I just had a really negative impression about everything and everybody in politics. And David made this statement to me and he said, you've been listening to the 10 Spies Network. And you know what? He didn't explain that, but he didn't have to explain it. That's a harken back to Numbers chapter 13 where Moses sent out the spies. There was 12 spies and Joshua and Caleb gave a positive report, but the 10 spies, they brought up a negative report saying, oh yeah, it's a great land, but we can't do it. They're giants. We're grasshoppers. And they turned the people's hearts against everything. And you know, sadly, this is the way it's being done. The people that are in the media, the people that control our information that is fed us are feeding us all of the bad negative stuff. But I really believe that there is a tremendous revival going on. And again, I don't know that I can prove that to you because I I don't have any outlet that is just presenting all of the positive reports and showing us all of these things. I'm not sure that if somebody had some outlet that just put out nothing but positive things and the miracles that are happening and the great things, I'm not sure anybody would listen to it. That's not what sells. Bad news is what sells, not good news. But just based on my limited uh, contact, you know, I travel the world, I travel this nation, I go to different churches, and man, I am hearing awesome reports about miracles that are happening. I just read uh, a report less than an hour ago about 250,000 people that were impacted by this one ministry and miracles happening, blind eyes being opened, people being saved, lives being changed. I can tell you just looking at our Karis Bible College, Karis Bible College is bursting at the seams. We can't seem to build fast enough, to build big enough. People are coming from everywhere. Our missions trips, when we send them out, I mean, it is a routine thing to see great miracles. People raised from the dead. We have seen multiple people raised from the dead, not just through me, but through our students. We're teaching people the Word and people are grabbing hold of the Word. You know, in the entire Bible, there were eight people recorded raised from the dead, 
plus Jesus. That makes nine if you include the resurrection of Jesus. And then it says that there were people that came out of their graves and walked into Jerusalem when Jesus rose from the dead, but it doesn't tell us how many of those there were. So anyway, there's eight specific times, nine if you include Jesus. And yet I could name right now probably 40 or 50 people off the top of my head who had been raised from the dead or who have seen people raised from the dead. And if I was to include the, the Bible college students that are going out, we've got a number of our instructors. We've got people over in Russia and uh, in Atlanta and other places that have seen people raised from the dead. If I was to include that, I bet you it would be well over 50, closer to 100 people. And yet there's only nine people in all of the Bible. If you stop and think about that, that's about 4,000 recorded years of biblical history, nine people, and I could name you at least 50, maybe up to 100 people who've been raised from the dead. We've got stories on our website. You can go and see people that were in wheelchairs that are now running. You can see people who were given up to dead. The doctor said they wouldn't return, and they were healed. People with uh, MRI showing one-third of their brain dead and non-functional. They should have been in a vegetative state, and yet they're totally alive and well. Now, since that time, that person has died and gone on to be with the Lord, but I mean for 10 years or whatever, they, they functioned when they weren't supposed to be able to function. We've got testimonies of people born without a whole heart, only a portion of their heart, no arteries to their lungs, and yet they are alive and well. We've got people from just nearly everything you can imagine. It's happening. God is moving. There's great miracles happening. So anyway, my point is that Elijah is sitting here saying, I, even I only, I'm the only one left. Not true. It's also not true for you. I believe we are living in a great day. It's just that we are listening to the 10 spies network. We aren't hearing this. And sad to say, even among Christians, Christians often will just amplify the negative things. You'll have people get up and preach a sermon and they'll start out and start giving statistics about how bad our nation is and all of the things that are wrong and then they'll end it with, we need to pray and believe God. But the negative impression or the impression that's left is all negative. It's just talking about how bad things are. But there's a lot of great things happening. So let me again just point this out that Elijah, he went and anointed Elisha to take his place, but he did not do two-thirds of the things that God told him to do in an audible voice. You can see that because in 2 Kings chapter 8 uh, is where Elisha anointed um, Haziel to be king over Syria. He wouldn't have done this if God had, if uh, his predecessor Elijah had already done it. And then in chapter 9, Elisha anoints Jehu to be king over Israel. And he wouldn't have done this if Elijah had done it. So Elijah failed in two-thirds of the things that God told him to do. The only thing he did was anoint his successor. And I believe that was indicative of him just wanting out of it. He was ready to quit, ready to give up. And so here it says in verse 19, this is 1 Kings 19, 19. It says, So he departed, talking about Elijah, and found Elisha the son of Sapat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen before him, and he with the twelfth. In other words, this shows you that he was a very rich, very well-to-do man. He had uh, eleven other servants that were plowing with yokes of oxen in front of him, and he was with the twelfth. 
And Elijah just walked by, passed by him, and cast his mantle upon him. Which, you know, to us today, this may not mean much, but in that day, they knew exactly what all this was about. And in verse 20, it says, He left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and my mother, then I will follow thee. And Elijah said unto him, Go back again, for what have I done to thee? You know, this is a little uh, awkward here. It's hard to know exactly what happened. But to me, this looks like Elijah was saying, Hey, I just obeyed God. I'm calling you. Here's this mantle. I've cast this mantle upon you. And this is God's call. I've done what God told me to do. You do whatever you want to. In other words, Elijah, just as he was telling the Lord, he just had given up. He was ready to quit. And he went and he cast his mantle on this successor, but he wasn't going to force the issue. He just basically said, you do whatever you want to. And Elisha went back and he killed the oxen that he was plowing with, used the yoke that they had as fire. And what he did basically was burn his bridges behind him. He just, this was it. He was never going to go back to doing this. And again, I'm reading between the lines, but everybody in the nation of Israel knew what Elijah had done. I believe that Elijah was well known. And uh, Elisha, this is not his first rodeo. This wasn't his first time to ever respond to the Lord. He had been seeking the Lord. It's possible that God had prepared him. It's possible that he was praying and saying, Oh God, I want to be like Elijah. I'd like to have you use me. I know that today when people are called into the ministry, it's never totally a broadsided thing. They, they've been prepared for it. I believe that Elisha was ready for this and instead of going back and staying with his family or whatever, he burnt his bridges behind him and then he ran after Elijah and he became his servant. And it doesn't say exactly how long it was, but I've read a number of commentaries and most people believe it was eight years from the time that Elisha was anointed by Elijah until Elisha became the prophet and took over his ministry. So for eight years at least, or possibly even longer than that, Elisha was in training. Boy, there's a great lesson here that you know what? If you feel called to the ministry, you don't need to learn everything through your own mistakes. Go get with somebody who's already in the ministry. And just like Elijah, Elijah was in decline at this time. He wasn't doing everything right, but there were still great things to learn. Sometimes you learn what not to do. We need to, in a sense, apprentice under other people.